Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined remotely by fellow co-host Joe Wolfon. What's going on? What's going on is it's the morning after the draft. The morning after a Rus- another Russell Westbrook blockbuster. It seems we get one of these every year, and it doesn't seem we do. Um, he's now going to the Lakers. And Can I interrupt you just momentarily? Please do. Like, are we still calling these blockbusters? You know what? Like, I, I'd say... I'd say we are only because like it's still Westbrook, you know, even regardless of what you think of his game and whether you think, I still think like from a name recognition perspective, from like a star appeal perspective, I do think Russell Westbrook getting traded and getting traded to the Lakers does still make it a blockbuster, even though in terms of on-court impact, it does not match the like what I was just saying about like the name appeal and, and right. the star name and stuff. Okay, I'm with that. Um, but yeah. I... As I'm sure we'll discuss, I think uh, as far as how much it does or doesn't move the needle, I don't think I would characterize it as such. We we do not disagree there. Uh, we are going to, I think, start with the Westbrook thing. I will throw to you soon. We will get into the draft because, yes, the, the draft ended up taking place in the shadow of a Westbrook trade, but it still took place and it was a big night for a lot of teams. So we'll get to that. Before we get to either one of those things, isn't that the like official fan shout out of the week? Because we'll get to that at the end of the show. But I did want to shout out uh, Randall Furman, who we've actually given a fan shout out to before. Also an old high school friend of mine who is a devoted listener to our show, posts us on IG all the time. And Brett Fleming. I'm, I Honestly, we've done so many shout outs that I'm not uh, quite sure if we've given Brett Fleming a fan shout out before. But if not, you know, I know this is the unofficial early shout out of the week, but still wanted to give a shout out to Randall and Brett because uh, I'm not sure if you saw this on Twitter, but both of them immediately recognized, and they weren't the only ones, um, that when the Spurs selected Josh Primo, which I- I'm calling the reach of the night, but we'll get to that too. When the Spurs selected Josh Primo, who's from uh, Toronto, where we are both from, with the 12th pick, I believe. ESPN and ABC used some sort of stock music. And if, you know, if, if you were listening with a keen ear, you would have recognized that it was, it was the same music we use for our Pound the Rock intro and outro. And uh, I just wanted to shout out Randall and Brett for being uh, loyal enough listeners that when they heard that, their immediate reaction was to reach out to us on Twitter and say that they were using our music. Uh, hate to disappoint anyone. We did not create that music originally for Pound the Rock. But we do very much appreciate that you're a loyal enough listener that you immediately heard it, thought of us, spotted it, sent us that. And I, I, I do get to give a special shout out to Randall, not just because he's an old high school friend and I'm biased, but because he actually went through the process of recording a 10 second video. And I, you, you can see it too, Joe. He posted it on Instagram, but he also sent it to us on Twitter where he, oh, as the music was playing, did his own like, hello and welcome to pa-. He Yeah. I think, I think he used the phrase, hello sports fans, which I don't think you've ever done before, but he did try to do a wolf on imitation. And, and went from the vantage point of Wolf on hosting. So I, I got to give Randall and, and Brett an early shout out this week just because I, I found that genuinely hilarious and laughed to myself on my couch. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, I have like not been spending a ton of time on Twitter these days, as you may have noticed. <laughs> but that's awesome and definitely uh, gives me some more ammo for my list of podcast openers that has recently been you know, scraping the bottom of the barrel, let's say. Um, all right. Do, do you uh, do you want to get into the rust trade now and save our uh, other 
early shout out of the week um, for a special reviewer of our show for the end or do you want to get to that now as well and then we get we'll get into the dirty details of the pod no go ahead let's get it out of the way all right yeah what we need to get out of the way is we don't have a name to shout out but uh his review name his tag on i guess what is this apple podcast that he left this review on is silver gleaming death machine and uh we just we had to shout out this review because it made us both laugh i think for very different reasons um his review is titled five for cash three for wolfond <laughs> while i like the pod a lot and cash is one of the most engaging analysts out there wolfond while thoughtful is a bit of a drag we get it players owe fans nothing and no player or coach should ever be criticized switch it up a bit uh, before i th- i i give you the floor and seize the mic to you i i do want to say this considering how much this guy doesn't really seem to enjoy his dose of joe wolf on i think it's interesting he still gave you a three out of five and the way i view that is like if if this was the nba draft you would be a high floor <laughs> low risk prospect because even on your apparently worst days or days when someone thinks get a new bit you're still a three of five you know you're still a passing grade even when they don't agree with you. Listen, I'll take it. End point taken, you know? <laughs> Not everybody is going to vibe with the nuanced takes. And if I've been hammering that drum a little bit too hard or too frequently, I apologize for for wearing it thin. Look, I mean... I, I'm not, I don't, I've never said that like players or coaches are, are above criticism. Like if you've listened to any of our episodes where we've discussed Russell Westbrook, for instance, or Ben Simmons, or, you know, pre 2021, Mike Budenholzer, like you would know that uh, I can dish out my fair share of criticism, but like, you know, I'm never going to go gung ho, like full fire and brimstone rant. Cause that's not my way. And I understand if, I think that like I have certain knee jerk reactions sometimes where I almost like preemptively will jump to the defense of a player or a coach because I, I just get the sense that like um, some of the ways in which those players or coaches get talked about or the narratives that get constructed around them. I feel like maybe I get too hung up on that and like it feeds into my impulse to just like push back against it when maybe it's not always necessary. But that's that's just kind of the way that I see things. And, you know, as far as switching it up a bit, like, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Like, my my NBA takes are going to be my NBA takes. They, they aren't going to change. So, you know, if it's a three, it's a three. I'm sorry for weighing you down, Cash. This could be a five-star podcast, apparently, if there were two of you. But uh, I guess that's how it's got to be. No, I... Uh... I think I think our listeners would agree that we got to let Wolfon be Wolfon, and I think uh, I think I think we've got our own thing going on, and I think that uh, sometimes it's good to have uh, you ground me in a way and uh, keep me in check, so that I don't veer too far. I think no, I, I think for the most part, I'd say we are both pretty nuanced in our NBA discussions and analysis, and I think especially when I write, if anyone like reads me on the app, I think. I'm a lot more nuanced when I do that. Obviously, it's a very different medium. Um, but it's it's funny you say that because I feel like when I write, I'm the opposite. Like I feel like I have stronger takes or or sort of talk about things in slightly stronger, more opinionated terms when I write than I do when I'm talking on the pod. 
Interesting. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, well, from a pod perspective, yeah, I think that's definitely where I go the other way, but I think, uh, I think, uh, it's good that, uh, you keep me in check with that. And I think, uh, it's good that sometimes I push you to, you know, call a clown a clown. Um, and here we are with a well-rated and well-liked podcast. So silver gleaming death machine. We do appreciate your feedback genuinely. All right. Now, other than uh, asking for those who would give me a less than five review to submit your reviews in the coming weeks, let's get into this goddamn podcast that we told ourselves we're going to do in 45 minutes or less, which means we have 35 minutes to go. We're going to get this done, Wolfon. Just give me your goddamn Russell Westbrook trade take because you wrote about it last night. I kind of love it for the Wizards, kind of hate it for the Lakers. I just, I, I understand it. Like if you're looking at it sort of, as a talent play, I don't know how many moves the Lakers realistically had to make. You know, it's easy to say now, and I have said many times, they should have made that Kyle Lowry trade at the deadline last year. Could have gotten Lowry's bird rights, could have been re-signing him right now. I think that is a way cleaner fit for that roster. And by all accounts, I mean, they would have maybe had to include Talon Horton Tucker but beyond that, I you know I, I don't know that the acquisition cost would have been a whole lot steeper. And now here they are; they're making this play for Westbrook, and I just don't think it's the right fit. I don't think it's the right play for them to be making. But again, maybe there's just like a dearth of other options. Like, I mean, I, I would have even preferred Kemba Walker as a target for them. I think if they were going to try and find what you may describe as a distressed asset, like a, a, an undesirable contract, but a player who still obviously has value and can be super productive. Like I think Kemba would have been a way cleaner fit as well. I think there are benefits to it. I think, you know, LeBron has a history of just kind of making shit work. His playmaking genius can make things work that shouldn't otherwise work. And, D despite you know the spacing concerns the the concerns about Westbrook as an off-ball player those can be mitigated to an extent by the way that you know Westbrook and LeBron can kind of play off of each other's on-ball gravity and you know I this is a Lakers team now that is just going to be like it's not going to be fun trying to defend the Lakers even though I think the strategy is going to be clear which is like there are going to be places that they can double off of they can pack the hell out of the paint like that makes it easier to an extent you still got to stop this team from getting to the rim right and they and you got to stop them from getting out in transition like they're going to make hay in the open floor they are going to probably lead the league or close to it in points in the paint they're probably going to dominate on the glass and you know, the, I think there's maybe a silver lining there where it's like, I, I think they almost just don't have a choice now, but to lean into Anthony Davis as a center. You know, we did a late, uh, Lakers postmortem after they lost to the Suns and we were already saying they need more shooting. The best way to do that is just like lean harder into AD at the five and throw some more shooting into those lineups, like open up the floor a little bit. Now it's like just that much more imperative, right? Like shooting was already a concern for this team. And they just went and traded Contavious Caldwell-Pope, who was their best three-point shooter last season, for literally one of the worst high-volume shooters in NBA history. And I don't know what it looks like when Westbrook doesn't have the ball in his hands. And this is kind of like the, the pervasive issue with Westbrook. 
when he's not playing on a team that is sort of just like catered to his strengths, the way that the Rockets team was a couple of years ago. And even then there were some issues with, you know, his fit alongside Harden in any other circumstance. It's like he necessarily just has to soak up all of these on ball possessions because him off of the ball can just really cripple your half court offense. And so he almost just like naturally by necessity, like takes over the team and cannibalizes possessions from other players because it's realistically the best way to go about it. Like LeBron is a better off ball player than Westbrook. So you're, if you're trying to maximize that pairing, obviously, you know, you're not going to take away all of LeBron's on ball possessions, but if one of those guys is going to be sacrificing something or adapting and playing more without the ball, I feel like it has to be LeBron and like, is taking the ball out of LeBron's hands and putting it in Russell Westbrook's hands, a guy who turns the ball over at an astronomical rate and hasn't produced even a league average true shooting percentage in four or five years. Like, is that a good thing? I'm not sure. Especially when you think about, you know, the downgrade at the defensive end that's coming along with it, where KCP is, I think after Caruso, probably the, you know, the Lakers second best point of attack defender, and Kuzma, I think, had made terrific strides at that end of the floor, too. And you're replacing them with a guy who is prone to spacing out, to blowing rotations, to making really bad, reckless gambles. And that's just going to put a lot of, you know, a lot more pressure on the back line of that defense. So, I don't know, there's some good and there's some bad there. I, I ultimately just don't love it <laughs> from the Lakers side we can talk about the wizard side of things and why I like it from their end, but uh, you can jump in here with, with your thoughts on, on the Lakers side of things before we do that. Yeah. I mean, I think you pretty much covered everything. Look, I think the Lakers upgraded their overall talent level, their star talent level, I guess you can still say on a team with LeBron James and Anthony Davis. That is like, obviously still very capable of winning a championship. I'm genuinely happy that, you know, we'll get to see Russ who, you know, at his best is still like an electric player to watch. I'm very happy that we are going to get him, get to see him play on a team that has legitimate championship uh, chances, which really like, you know, that Houston team was good. But once they lost Chris Paul, like I'd say this is probably Russ's first time since KD's last year in OKC on like a true, 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 like contender full stop. And I think that'll be exciting to watch if it goes even semi well. And look, he's had sizable stretches in each of the last two seasons now, two regular seasons, I'll, I'll add, um, where he has been insanely good. But yeah, like the, the things he does not do well and the way he can negatively affect the team because of those issues, at, we often see in the playoffs especially, are very real and they're only going to continue to get worse as he gets older and loses some of his athleticism. You know, he does he does not at all address their need for shooting. As you mentioned, he's one of, if not the worst volume shooter ever. Uh, and look, I know that he, his like rim attacking and rampaging and driving creates spacing in its own way. So I don't want to just say because he's a you know terrible long range shooter, he hurts their spacing, but that's where, as you mentioned, the AD at the five thing becomes so important because, okay, if you're counting on say Russ's on ball gravity and his drives to create that spacing, well, it's like, then you better ha not have like two seven footers clogging the paint because he can't drive in it. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. if they go AD at the five and they're optimal yeah. lineups and, and Russ is, you know, you're not as much worried about what he's doing to your spacing from a negative standpoint. And instead you can focus on the positive of he's creating more spacing with his driving and he's actually giving them 
you know, that other ball handler facilitator that they need aside from LeBron James. And I think there are ways it can go well. But yes, the way that he, instead of addressing their needs for three-point shooting and, you know, they're a great defensive team, but losing KCP and Kuzma, you could say that he now needs some defense. And instead of addressing those needs, he actually detracts from them, makes them, makes them need those things even more now. And when you add all that up, I just, I think it's kind of like this, this move ends up going in circles for them. And I'm not really sure they're better other than just being more overall talented, which I guess, you know, can't hurt. Yeah. And I mean, maybe it's not fair to judge it until we see what the finished product looks like as far as their roster is concerned. Like they still have moves to make and maybe there's a, like a, a shrewder sign and trade that can happen that brings them back a piece that makes the roster fit a little bit better. Like I think this almost certainly spells the end of Schroeder's time in LA, right? So we'll see what happens there and how they fill out the roster on the margins. But just going back to what you said about like the, you know, the too big thing and, you know, the, the way that that can clog up space and why it becomes necessary to, to sort of veer away from that. I think that's true also of like the transition game, right? Where like, I think what is going to make this team strong offensively is its ability to like get out and just destroy teams in transition. And if you're playing a plotting center, you know, for, for 35 minutes a game, as they've been doing the last couple of years, that's just slowing them down. And so we know AD has been kind of resistant to playing full-time center in the past. I think this is the moment of truth, man. Like he, he just sort of needs to come around, I think, on the idea of himself as a center. And like I've said in the past, you know, you, you run into a matchup against a Joel Embiid, you know, a Jonas Valanciunas, even a Jokic, then maybe it's a good opportunity to sort of scale back 80s minutes at the, at the five and like throw an Andre Drummond out there for heavier minutes than you'd otherwise play him to just spare the toll on AD's body. But apart from that, I think the advantage that, that the Lakers want and need to be pressing is their speed, right? Like they can't really beat teams with shooting. And I think they're, you know, what they have, their greatest attribute as I look at this roster is that speed, that force, the pressure that they're going to be able to exert on the rim in order to be able to do that. They need to just like put faster players on the floor, which is naturally going to exclude a traditional big man and to space things out. Like even if you look at Westbrook's at rim attempts, his season in Houston, he was at 10 and a half per game last year in Washington. He was at five a game, less than half. And that is the impact of going from a team with like maximal spacing to one that, you know, have less than ideal spacing, frankly. And so it's like, you're not really getting the full breadth of like the downhill Westbrook experience if you're not surrounding him with the spacing necessary to make that happen. Yeah, no, I don't disagree with any of that. Uh, you have your Wizards take on it because I think we both really like this trade for the Wizards given, especially if you go back to, them moving the wall contract from the start. Yeah, I mean, that's... Can you imagine a year ago saying that they were going to get off of that wall contract while coming out net even on first-round picks? And they ultimately ended up moving down nine spots from the, the Lakers' 22nd slot to pick first, essentially, in the second round. Um, but they get Aaron Holiday in the bargain, who's like an interesting... I don't love Aaron Holiday. He's very offensively limited Is probably like the single worst at rim finisher in the NBA. And I think he's just topping out as a backup, but whatever, like 
a solid backup point guard is still useful. So they get Aaron Holiday and they use that 31st pick on Isaiah Todd, who's like a pretty toolsy, but pretty raw big man. I, I just like that piece of business. And I, you know, yeah, looking at it holistically, it's like they get off of the wall contract. They don't wind up, you know, shelling out draft capital. Um, or like they, they shelled out a first round pick that they basically recouped in this deal. They get Kuzma, who I think is an intriguing young player who has gotten better in ways that I think I didn't really expect him to. And a lot of people didn't expect him to. He's not the kind of one dimensional scorer that it looked like he was going to be when he came into the league. He's now uh, like a more limited scorer in, in, in a weird way, but a, a more well-rounded player who rebounds really well, who defends well, who feels the game, I think a lot better than he did when he came into the league. I think that's an interesting young player who who is under contract for a couple more years and could be a, a long-term piece. And I think, you know, look, obviously people are going to wonder, is this a precursor to a Bradley Beal trade? At the moment, it doesn't appear that way. Uh, I think it was Shams Charania who reported that Beal has no intention of leaving the Wizards in spite of this move. If it does evolve into a rebuild situation, I think like Montrez Harrell and KCP, those are guys that you can flip. And, and like get more assets. You know, I don't think you're getting anything great for those guys. You're probably not, you know, getting a first rounder or like a blue chip prospect, but that can get you more stuff. And so I think ultimately, like they're coming out ahead, getting off of that wall contract, actually like pulling in valuable assets in the bargain. And I just think that would have been like impossible to fathom a year ago. And in the interim, they got like a pretty fun playoff season out of the Westbrook experiment. So. I think this is a nice piece of business for them. I didn't have a lot of faith that the team as it was constructed was really going anywhere. And maybe they're still not, but they just have a lot more flexibility now to sort of retool around Beal if he's staying. And if it is ultimately the precursor to a Beal trade, I think this is a good start as far as kind of uh, accumulating assets and just getting the ball rolling in a positive direction. Yeah, I don't have anything to add to that, man. I think uh, I think a franchise that I used to hate on a lot, rightfully so, under Ernie Grunfeld. I think the last couple of years, you know, they they spun their wheels a little bit with the wall to Westbrook transition, and you know, you mentioned they got a fun playoff season out of it, so whatever. And yeah, I think all in all, when you kind of look at the accumulation of moves to go from the wall deal to the Westbrook deal to now this, it could have been a lot worse, and they could have um, they could have ended up a lot further back than they actually are. And I think that's that's a that's a testament to the front office under Tommy Shepard so far. Obviously a lot more to do there. And you know, the Beal stuff is still hanging over like a dark cloud. I know he's again saying he's, you know, maybe not um necessarily needing to go, but I you know I've been saying this for like over a year now that I just it's not even that like I don't think he's being honest when he says it. It's just like I don't believe he will actually continue to feel this way or like, even if you look at this team on paper now, it's like, okay, they've got some, like, good young players and whatever. Like, there could be an exciting, but they're not going to be good, you know? And it's like, how much longer is Bradley Beal okay? And if he is, again, as we've talked about before, whatever, maybe he's one of these guys just, like, very comfortable there, doesn't want to have to deal with a move. But fair enough. If that's, you know, the spot he's in and he's just happy with his contract, you know, whatever. People are different. But based on what we can kind of glean about Bradley Beal and how competitive he, especially in the last couple of years, has looked, I still find it hard to believe that he's just going to be okay with what the Wizards are right now as he continues to play through his prime. Uh, unless you have anything else to say, 
both the Wizards or the Lakers or that deal or Westbrook. I think we can take the break, come back, and say talk like 20 minutes of NBA draft. You good with that? Let's do it. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, well, fun. Let's talk draft. I did a post last night, um, which was essentially my five biggest takeaways, observations, interesting things from the draft. While you were writing about the Westbrook trade, I think we can kind of go down in order here. The Pistons getting Cade Cunningham, not surprising anyone. I don't think there's necessarily like an overarching take to be had here, but... As I said, when they won the lottery and it became pretty obvious they were going to get Cade Cunningham, I don't know if any franchise needed this more than the Pistons. This was a once very proud franchise that used to have one of the most raucous and energetic arenas in the NBA in a pretty basketball mad city. And, you know, it's really, really eroded. You know, obviously things are bigger than basketball. Like there's a lot about the city of Detroit, unfortunately, that has eroded that bigger than basketball over the last few decades. But even from a basketball perspective, like the fan base, the energy in the arena, the amount of people in the arena, the money, like just all of it, they had become a shell of them for former selves. And they were a very irrelevant franchise. They had not, they have not won a single playoff game in 13 years. They haven't finished in the top half in attendance and I think like nine years or more. This is a team that hasn't really had an individual talent with this type of transcendent or at least like, you know, generational type promise since Grant Hill like a quarter century ago. No exaggeration. They they just so badly, and I know they won a championship in between, but, you know, as great as that team was, and it included at least one Hall of Famer, no one on that team was like the type of individual generational talent that, you know, I, like the iconic type, you know what I'm saying. And and Cade's got the ability to do that, whether he actually fulfills that or not. So I just think no franchise needed this more than them. And then the one thing I wanted to add too is outside of the obvious thing where it's like, okay, they've got their potential franchise changer in Cade. It's just how much actual talent the Pistons have added strictly through the draft in the last two drafts is pretty nuts. Whether, you know, now you're talking about Cade Cunningham and uh, they also in the second round added 2021 Naismith Player of the Year uh, award winner Luke Garza, which is a pretty good pick for a, a late second round pick. So you add Cunningham and Garza to Sadiq Bay, Killian Hayes, and Isaiah Stewart, who they drafted and or acquired at last year's draft. To accumulate that much talent strictly through the draft over two drafts, eight months apart in this case, is pretty nuts. And then you add that to, you know, uh, having Jeremy Grant under team control for at least a couple more years. Uh, you know, they uh, they traded for Hamadou Diallo at the deadline last year in a deal we weren't really thrilled for from OKC's perspective. And he's an RFA, but we'll see. The Pistons have his matching right. So all of a sudden, in the last like year or less, the amount of talent and young talent the Pistons have added, considering where they were and how just absolutely hopeless it looked like, I mean, you got to be just absolutely thrilled, delighted, reinvigorated if you're a Pistons fan and I'm happy for them. I'm happy for Dwayne Casey. Uh, I'm happy for Detroit. It, it should be really exciting. And honestly, I think they can maybe like compete for a playoff spot immediately. 
I think that's just wholly dependent on how ready Cade actually is to be. Like, if he's what Luca was in Luca's rookie year, then yeah, they can compete for like an East play-in spot. I think. Barring that, I still think there are ways away. Uh, I do hope they retain Diallo though, because I'm a big Diallo guy, as you well know. And I like what they're building there long term. Isaiah Stewart had a great rookie season. Uh, you know, Killian Hayes did not, but obviously. I think there was an expectation that he was going to be pretty raw coming in as like an 18 year old point guard. So they can afford to be patient with him. And obviously now the pressure isn't on him to be a franchise guy, right? They can mold him into hopefully a secondary creator and a complimentary guy to, you know, what Kate is going to be, which I presume is just going to be an oversized lead guard. And I, I think, Ultimately, it could grow into something really interesting. I'm not as bullish on like their short-term prospects unless, again, Kate is just that dude right away. And obviously, the skill and physical package is there, but it's still pretty rare. I think we have to remember, like, it's still pretty rare for a player to just come into the league and be that level of impact guy where it's like you're not only immediately the best player on your team, but you're good enough to actually like elevate a, a otherwise pretty poor teams floor to the point that you can actually like hover around 500 and compete for a playoff spot. Um, But obviously long-term that's huge, incredible news for the Pistons who, as you mentioned, really, really needed it. But yeah, it's, I I don't know that we need to really like talk about the first three picks because they were all pretty expected. Um, The surprises really started at number four, right? And that's where to me, things get pretty interesting. So I don't know. I'll kick it back to you and you can start us off here. The Raptors went obviously not off board. I think they probably took the guy most people expected to go number five yeah. at number four. They they passed on the but, consensus fourth pick with the fourth pick to take the consensus fifth pick. It's not it's not outrageous. I think if no, I think it felt like a bigger deal than maybe it actually was, just because for so long this has been talked up as like a four per, not it hasn't been talked up as a four person draft i think that, like the consensus is there's a ton of talent in this draft and it's a deep draft for a while it but, was considered a five person draft with kuminga actually being the right. fifth guy in that mix yeah right and then you know the the g league ignite thing uh did not go quite as well yeah. for him as it went for jalen green no. so there was a bit of uh, of differentiation there and uh, yeah i think the consensus was like there was a, a top tier that was basically k'd by himself and a second tier that was kind of Suggs, Green, and Mobley. And then after that, there was quite a big drop-off to the rest of the draft. So I think it felt like a big deal because the Raptors kind of stepped over that gulf and pulled somebody from the other side (laughs) over to where they stood at number four and let Suggs fall to the Magic at number five. So I'm curious uh, what it signals about, you know, what the Raptors front office believes in, what they're trying to do. And I know you and I are probably going to be aligned on this in that I think we both feel the rap, uh, you know, the Raptors front office deserves the benefit of the doubt when it comes to prospect evaluation. But I would say, yes, they do deserve the benefit of the doubt, but that front office has also made mistakes and this might've been a mistake. Uh, So, you know, from, from a process perspective, what do you think about this kind of, I guess somewhat bold decision to bypass the creating guard in order to take the 
versatile wing defender with a limited offensive profile. Yeah, look, and this is what I wrote about last night, especially with Kyle Lowry's, you know, future in Toronto up in the air again with him approaching free agency again. The, you know, if if you imagine Lowry gone, and he might not be, but if you just imagine it for a second, because he will be eventually, the, the Raptors remaining core is basically comprised of versatile defensive studs, no doubt about that, who... While capable offensive players in their own way, you know, Siakam has been an all-NBA player and a 20-plus per game scorer a couple years in a row. Fred Van Vliet had a 50-plus point game. OG Ananobi's coming around. While all of them are capable offensive players in their own way, they also all come with offensive question marks, whether it be size in Van Vliet's case and finishing inside, whether it's, you know, whatever's gone on with Siakam the last couple of years, or not even a couple of years, but year and a little bit, I guess. Um, you know, OG's still not a natural offensive star. Those question marks have translated to hampering the team's half-court creation. And we saw that, you know, as they, um, I won't say flamed out because they gave the, the Celtics a hell of a series in that series, but they were the higher seed. They, they lost to that Celtics team in seven. We saw the half-court issues there last year, obviously, as they struggled to win at all in the regular season, we saw the struggles with half-court creation. And so when you add all that up and then you consider that the consensus fourth pick when you have the number four pick is a projected star guard, and big shot maker in Jalen Suggs, who hit big shots all year for Gonzaga, you know, it just kind of makes sense. Well, that's the guy they're going to take. It's too, it's too obvious, right? It's like, it's not just that, you know, he's seen as the fourth best prospect overall, but he's also the best fit for them. And leave it to Messiah Jerry's Raptors to go slightly off the board and select a defensive-minded player with offensive holes you know, who is, as I said, the consensus fifth pick. So look, it's definitely a risk. And even when I say, and I tweeted it last night and people were very torn on it, but when I talk about like, you know, trusting the Raps front office more than people getting their scouting degree from Twitter University and whatever, it's not just that like, I think you should have blind faith in the Raptors front office or any front office for that matter. It's not just that I think, oh, these guys work in the NBA or they've had great drafts before. So I automatically think what they do will pan out and work for them. But I also think, again, we're talking about a guy that was projected fourth, a guy that was projected fifth. Jalen Suggs, definitely the safer floor, definitely a safer pick. And in my mind, based on my limited scouting ability, the guy I would have taken and the guy I think will be the better NBA player. But there is also a lot of um, expert analysis out there. There's a lot of things you can see with your own eyes. There's a lot of physical tools there that also make you realize that if a team believes in its development system and almost no team in the NBA should believe in their development system more than the Raptors, if you believe in your scouting department and being able to project forward, and again, very few teams in the NBA should believe in their scouting department and, you know, projecting draft picks forward and all that more than the Raptors, then there's a very real case to be made that Scotty Barnes has the higher upside than Jalen Suggs and very well could be not just better than Suggs going forward, but perhaps the best player, if not second best player in this draft. I think he's got that kind of upside if they can develop and and bring him out of those offensive holes. Will it be easy? No. But I just think, I thought the the reaction from some corners of, you know, whether it was Raptors Twitter or even some, you know, experts and stuff on Twitter, I just thought the reaction to the deal was honestly a little unhinged considering what we're actually talking about here. And we're not talking about them going off the board to draft like Joshua Primo or something. You know what I mean? Like they took the next guy in the line in terms of a lot of people's eyes, but a guy that they very clearly see as the higher upside guy. And I think Messiah Jerry's Raptors have always, 
for the most part, drafted the guy that and and gone and swung for the fences with the guy they believe will have the highest upside. They clearly think that about Barnes. Again, I'm not disputing that it's a risk. It is. And look, if if they can't develop him to his ceiling and they can't fix some of those offensive flaws and you know get him even a semi-reliable jumper, they can't do those things and Suggs excels in Orlando as I think he can, then Ujiri in this front office will wonder how they got something so obvious so wrong. It'll haunt the Raptors for a long time, not disputing that. But if their renowned skill development program helps Barnes develop a semi-reliable jumper and turns him into a capable NBA scorer, like they've got a potential superstar on their hands. And, and now we kind of wait and see. Um, the only other thing I'd add is that uh, whatever happens on the offensive end, and I think at the very least in year one for Barnes, it will look ugly at times. And this team will very much once again struggle to score in the half court. I think they'll be great in transition. The one thing I can say is the defensive potential immediately of a team boasting Barnes, OG Ananobi, Siakam, Van Vliet is like unreal, gobsmacking. Um, and that the Raptors have accumulated and retained that talent, plus even Malachi Flynn last year, while often contending until this past year and trading for Kawhi Leonard in the middle of all that and still having all this stuff, I, I think that is a testament to the front office and why I think they do deserve the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, a few things. Like one, first of all, I don't think that, you know their draft pick should inform their decision on what to do about Kyle Lowry. Like Agreed. they can make those two decisions independently of each other, obviously. But if Lowry isn't back and there isn't you know whether through a sign and trade or the cap space that they would open up if they let him walk like a serious attempt to replace the playmaking and shot creation that he gives them that offense is going to be very ugly next year and that's fine like if they're taking more of a big picture view and looking at the you know the long term and they think that Barnes is ultimately going to be better then that's a perfectly reasonable process toward making the pick that they made I think, you know, from an outsider's perspective and me, like not only not having seen like the workouts, not having scouted these players extensively, like even compared to analysts, like people who who do a ton of work every year scouting the draft, like I'm in the dark here, right? Like for me, it's like from everything that I've read and everything that I've watched, Jalen Suggs seems like an, an incredible prospect and to me, like a better prospect than Scotty Barnes even just kind of looking at the league today and the way that it's trending, right? Like shot creation is at a premium and Barnes to me, you know, maybe ultimately he grows into the kind of player who can create his own shot, but that's an uphill climb, like from where he's starting. And obviously the Raptors believe that they can mold him into that type of player, but uphill climb and certainly no guarantee that it's going to happen. No guarantee that it's going to happen for Suggs either, you know, that he's going to be that player at least at a high level in the NBA. But I think maybe that's sort of where some of the knee-jerk criticism comes from, is just that the Raptors very clearly seem to be zagging while the rest of the league is zigging. And that's fine. Like, it's all well and good to to put together a team of, like, 6'8", 6'9", super switchable defenders with great athletic tools and like length length for days they love their length and Barnes has like elite measurables in every conceivable category but at a certain point like you need somebody who can put the ball in the basket and I wonder if maybe in their haste to kind of craft this team of you know Swiss army knife defenders 
have they lost sight a little bit of like the importance of shot creation and the importance of individual scoring? Uh, I guess that would be my concern a little bit. And like, it's a valid one. And, and like, you know, to, to the point about their draft record and why they deserve the benefit of the doubt. I do think maybe we should make a distinction because the, the picks that they have hit on have all come late in the first round or in the second round, or they've been undrafted players and look like clearly like they have an eye for talent, right? That front office can identify, evaluate, develop talent. And that translates to any scenario. But I do think there's kind of a difference between sort of like spotting a diamond in the rough and maybe capitalizing on something that like the rest of the league isn't seeing. So they're getting value out of like a low draft slot versus, you know, trying to pick the right player in the top five. And they haven't been in that situation before. Masai Ujiri's front office hasn't been in a position to draft that high. Like the highest pick they've had was number nine in 2016. They picked Jakob Pertl, who's, you know, I love Jakob Pertl, but like as a number nine pick, it's like, that's not blowing your mind. Like he's fine. Yeah. became an important in that first round. Yeah, so bonus went two picks later. Like, I'd have to revisit that draft. It's like, you know, you, you go back and be like, wow, what a pick at number nine getting Jakob Pertl. Like, yeah, he became, a, you know, an important piece of the Kawhi Leonard trade. But it, it's just different, I think. Um, For sure. And so in this case, like, yeah, I think it's entirely possible. We, we look back at this, you know, three, four years down the road and just think like they outsmarted themselves. Yep. But I also don't think, you know, it's so batshit crazy that they looked at these two players and decided that Barnes was the player type that they liked better and thought was ultimately going to be the better, more impactful player. And I think to the, you know, I think there's been some criticism of like, okay, well, if you weren't going to take the guy who was the consensus number four, why didn't you just trade back? And I think the simple answer to that is like the magic probably would have taken Barnes at five. And so there's one team essentially that you can make a trade back deal with and I would imagine they probably explored that. And the Magic were like, you know, if you're going to take Slugs, we'll just take Barnes. Like, we're not going to give you anything in a trade-up right. scenario. So that would be my guess as to how that went down. And yeah, look, at the end of the day, we can have our, our opinions or our evaluations of who these players are or how they're going to turn out. But I, I think, like you said, you know, if there is a team that deserves to believe in its ability to, like, take a... a more raw offensive prospect with elite tools and mold them into, you know, a functional offensive player. I, I think it is the Raptors. Yeah. And I will say the last note on this is that if you thought Scotty Barnes was falling past five for that, they could have traded down a few picks. If you thought an elite length defensive prototype who can't shoot was going to slip past the Orlando magic, you have not been watching the NBA and the Orlando magic the few years. He was not going past five. Okay. Let's get to a few more points a lot quicker. Thunder, I don't really think we need to talk about them. I just wanted to mention that in they come out of draft night and then a separate deal with favors there. Net plus two in first rounders. Somehow, again, they now have 17. 17 first round picks. Up, sorry, I should say up to 17 first round picks. Some of them are swaps and depend on placement and stuff, but up to 17 first round picks in the next five drafts. On a similar note, did want to spend at least a couple minutes talking about the Warriors draft because, look, I mentioned Kaminga 
um, at one point being considered, you know, a consensus top five player in a five player draft. He ends up falling after that rough year in the G League. Moses Moody, another high upside guy that fell to the Warriors at 14. So with the seventh and 14th picks, the Warriors end up with two guys in Kaminga and Moody who are seen as, whether they're projects or not, very high upside projects who in a lot of ways fell to them at seven and 14. And I think if you're talking about a team trying to construct a trade package for a disgruntled superstar and you look at what rebuilding or soon to rebuild be rebuilding teams will want when trading those stars projects or not high upside is what they're searching for so i just think a a warriors team that was already as well equipped as basically any team in the league to make a trade for a superstar just got even better equipped to do it and so i would just at this point i'd almost be stunned if we make it you know to the trade deadline of next season without the Warriors having landed a star because yeah. Well, okay. So do you think that Kaminga and Moody like have more value as trade chips than those picks did before they were made? I do. Yeah. I, I didn't think, I didn't think they were ending up with Kaminga at seven and even Moody. I mean, was some people had him as like a top 10 pick again. I'm not, I'm not pretending to know what these guys will turn into, but they, I mean, they ended up with Kaminga at seven because the league is obviously you know, not like, I mean, like not, not hot. He still went seventh overall, but like Kaminga stock fell a lot. There are, I think are genuine concerns about his shooting, his feel for the game, his defensive awareness. Like, okay. It it was a G league stint as an 18 year old. I don't think, you know, people should draw too many conclusions from that, but like that G league stint didn't go well. And yeah, I'm like, actually curious about whether you know the league at large would value him versus just uh you know blank check number seven pick moody i think like i you know i've seen a lot of people who who seem to be higher on moody than they are on kaminga Mm -hmm. but um yeah look i've been on team warriors should trade all their assets for immediate help for two years now (laughs) i thought they should have done it last year before making the wiseman pick and i think it's very clear I'm not, you know, completely out on Wiseman, by the way, but I think it's very clear that right now, James Wiseman has far less trade value than that number two pick did before they made it. And so maybe that's not the case as it pertains to Moody and Kaminga. But as those guys, you know, get exposed to NBA competition, those evaluations might change. I think both guys value is higher now than it will be maybe once the season starts. But I do think that I agree with you in a vacuum and in, in a general sense, usually, but I think in this case, like, okay, like even like Kaminga, you know, was he seen as, uh, as the type of maybe surer thing that the teams in the top six wanted? No, but uh, again, are he and Moody at seven and 14 still a lot more upside than you usually get at seven and 14? I think they are. And so for the teams that are maybe in, in the market to trade a star and have to start rebuilding, I think had they looked at these picks two days ago and thought mm, the Warriors seventh and 14th picks, like, I don't know. Whereas if you had told them it's going to be Kaminga and Moody, I think they'd be like, oh, really? You know what I mean? And that's right. It's not necessarily that I think the league as a whole thinks Kaminga is going to be this next, but I think teams that would be talking with the Warriors would be surprised that those are the two high upside guys they ended up with with those picks. And I think in that sense, it did boost their even if incrementally a boost is a boost to their right. to that trade package. I think this is a rare time where it actually the picks actually look better in hindsight after pick than they did when they were just picks. But otherwise, usually I'd agree with you. 
Yeah, I mean, it. Like we'll we'll see which star becomes available. Like that, you know, is conceivably attainable for them. I did want to, you know, another trade that happened a couple of days before draft night that had me scratching my head a little bit was the the Grizzlies Pelican swap, where I just feel like the Grizzlies gave up way too much, and not just in terms of like giving up Valanchunas, but also agreeing to take back all that pretty bad money from New Orleans to move up seven spots. Like, I, I, you know, I don't know a ton about Zaire Williams. Like, definitely a lot of people seem super high on him. And he seems like the the type of, you know, wing scorer that the Grizzlies could really use. I mean, I think you can argue Valanciunas was their best player last year. And, and I understand a team like Memphis where they're like, okay, like we can compete for a low playoff spot, but that's sort of as far as we go at this point in time. You know, we'd rather take a longer view. Like, I don't think that's bad process, but... I just feel like, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like great asset management, right? To use their available cap space and essentially their best player to take back all this bad money and move up seven spots in the draft. That just seemed like a weird one to me. And on the flip side, like seemingly a very good piece of business for the Pelicans. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how I feel about you calling Jonas Valanciunas their best player, but uh, no, like he... I'm not. I didn't say he was their best. Play. I just think that, like, for he, most of last season, he played uh, like yes, it. He did. I, I will not take that away from you. And I agree with you that it was a very puzzling decision on their part that only looked a little stranger after the picks were made. To be honest with you, um, last thing I will mention is the Knicks, which <clears throat> I don't know what to draw from this yet, but I think we can at least kind of lay it out for the listeners and for fans. So. The Knicks moved two picks, the 19th and the 21st pick last night, and ended up with the 25th, and I can't remember what else <clears throat> in the future. Uh, but it was a, a 2022 Hornets pick that's like has protections on it for the next four years or something like that. Right. Okay. So in the short term, they essentially they gave up 19 and 21 to move back to 25. Um, now look, maybe they just really liked Quinton Grimes and knew he'd be there and decided to get something out of it, even though I don't know what they got out of it when you consider they move down and, you know, get this really protected future pick. But um, it also cut a couple million off their projected 2021-22 cap sheet because instead of having two guys that are higher, you know, and the rookie scale uh, is like a de-escalating thing as you go down the first round, instead of having the 19 and 21, you're only getting one guy and it's 25. So that does, that shaves a couple million off their projected Mm -hmm. cap sheet. And they already didn't have much, in terms of 2021-2022 committed salary, uh, if you look at their cap breakdown. So w- one way to look at it is doing that actually hurts in terms of salary matching opportunities. Um, you know, if they wanted to get in for a guy like Damian Lillard, for example, who once the league season starts on whatever it is, August 2nd, his uh, his new salary, I think, kicks in at like $43 million or something. But the other way to look at it is that it helps them in clearing even more space in free agency if they actually wanted to go after a guy like Chris Paul or something like that, or whoever you know the most um, expensive free agents will be this season. So I just thought the Knicks move, uh, while seeming pretty innocuous, is actually very interesting and something to keep an eye on because I, I just think something's happening there or else that's just a very strange move to make without really any obvious benefit. Well, we've definitely never seen the Knicks make <laughs> a move like that, you know, with an eye to free agency and then come up empty handed before that has never happened. Um, 
Yeah, I think Knights seem to go pretty well for the Sixers who get Jaden Springer. A lot of people had him like in the top 10 of their big boards and seemed like a sort of similar situation to what happened with Tyrese Maxey last year where he just sort of fortuitously fell to them in the 20s. Um, So they get him at 28 and I don't think he's going to be the type of impact guard that they need right away, but they need a guard like that who can play on or off the ball, who can create a little bit. Um, so seemingly a great get for the Sixers. And I kind of liked the Hornets night. They started out by getting Mason Plumley. Not only did the Pistons just give him to the Hornets and the Hornets are in need of big men. We know this, like they get Plumley, who had a really good season. La- I mean, really good. He had a good season last year, perfectly serviceable center. But they also got the 37th pick in the draft for their troubles of just like taking on his contract. And they used that 37th pick to take JT Thor, who's like a pretty interesting big ball handling wing type, who's probably going to be more of like a long term project. But they got those guys, they got, uh, they, they were the ones who traded obviously to get that 19th pick from the Knicks and took another big man there in Kai Jones and got James Booknight at number 11. I feel like that. That was like a pretty solid night all around for Charlotte. Yeah, I mean, even the Rockets, you know, coming out of the draft with Jalen Green and Alperen Sengen and getting Sengen at the 16th pick, they, that was the trade that helped OKC get one of those extra first rounders in the future. I thought it was good. I mentioned the Spurs reaching for Primo. I mean, some people seem really high on Primo's upside. He's a Toronto guy, so we'll obviously be rooting for him. Uh, he is the youngest player in the draft. But definitely very raw. I think he averaged like eight points a game in only 22 minutes at Alabama as a freshman. Again, youngest player in the draft. Uh, he's going to need a lot of development time. But uh, everything I've read and watched, everybody seems to project as like a pretty high upside 3 and D guy with some playmaking chops. And I would say that given the way things are going for the Spurs, they are inching closer to that full-on rebuild. So if they thought he had the highest upset there at 12, while maybe a huge reach if they're going to be able to give him that development time. And so if they thought he was the highest guy there, go for it. Uh, Again, I'm not going to pretend to know whether he actually was or wasn't the highest upside guy on the board at 12. Sharif Cooper, who some people had as a lottery pick falls all the way to 48 uh, and the Hawks grab him to uh, bring him pretty close to home and play with Trey young, which should be interesting. But yeah, that was just really interesting to me because a, I was shocked when he fell out of the first round, but then when he, got passed up so many times by the same teams in the second round. And then the Raptors passed on him twice at 46 and 47. At that point, I started thinking maybe this is one of those deals where like once he fell out of the first round, him and his agent basically put it out there. They didn't want to be picked in the second mm-hmm. round. Maybe they would have preferred to go undrafted, take a little bit more control of their salary structure and stuff. Then the Hawks took him. So that, that just confused me more. It's like, okay, wait, so that wasn't out there. Why did teams pass on him? Is there something going on behind the scenes? I don't know, but. Yeah, I'd say from like reaches and steals and falls, those are the two biggest interesting guys to me. Yeah, I mean, guy who averaged 20 and eight as a freshman. Like, also, he didn't shoot the ball well and committed a ton of turnovers, but like the raw skill is clearly there. um, And he'll get to serve as an understudy to Trey Young, which seems like a pretty good setup for Atlanta. The, The one other thing that sort of piqued my interest, and here we'll get our obligatory episodic mention of the Pacers, but um, they were, you know, sort of involved in that Wizards deal in the sense that they acquired that number 22 pick from the Wizards in exchange for 31, which they had 
earlier in the night acquired from the Bucks, and in exchange, like the player that the Wizards picked on Indiana's behalf was a big man, which is like, I don't know that that just always gets my ears up because it's like you know you already sort of have this front court logjam with Sabonis and Turner. They also have Goga Batadze, who they drafted in the first round a couple of years ago, and here they are trading up. Uh, not that like Aaron Holiday is like some big loss for them, but you know, trading up to get another big man in Isaiah Jackson. I don't know. What does that say about what they plan to do with that front court log jam? And does that signal some intent to maybe move on from one of those guys? Yep. All very interesting stuff. All right. We did not stick to 45 minutes. Got it in about an hour. I don't know what that says about us. (laughs) And brevity and trying to be concise. But if you're still here, thank you. Uh, And I think that will do it for this episode. Official fan shout out of the week, even though we had kind of shouted out a few people earlier in the show. Moses, who goes by Moses underscore Mose5 on Instagram, reached out on Instagram, uh, goes to the University of Windsor here in Ontario, Canada, but reached out to say he wanted to let you and I know how much he enjoys Pound the Rock. Says he started listening to it after he realized his first year university roommate knew way more about basketball than him, found Pound the Rock, and that we have now made him sound more knowledgeable many times and that our show has become a staple of his. He says these days, uh, I guess he's not at school anymore, summer break, says he listens to us while he mows the lawn and that his neighbors often see him chuckling to himself while he listens to our pod. Says he loves when we clown someone. And at the time he had sent this, you had not returned yet. So he said he was also very excited to hearing Wolfon back on the show soon, which he now is. So Moses, thank you. Uh, as always, I will say that we are, anytime someone hits us with feedback like that, we appreciate it. But anytime someone lets us know that like, I don't know, listening to our show, whatever it is, even if it's a, some, something as simple as we make mowing the grass a little funner for you. Anytime we hear that, we positively contribute to your life or your day or your listening experience in any way we appreciate that Uh, probably even more so than you appreciate the show so thank you to all of our listeners and supporters as usual if you are a listener of the show whether this is the first time you've ever listened or the 193rd time you've listened hit us up on social media let us know what you like or don't like about the show and we will get you a shout out on a future episode with that joe wolf on I'm Joseph Cacharo, Pound the Rock.